Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's great conversation is with Eileen Chong. The Final Draft Great Conversations podcast is all about books, writing, and literary culture. My name's Andrew Popel. Every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. And Final Draft is dedicated to exploring Australian writing, from taboo authors to household names. Every week we look into the issues that drive our storytelling and help you discover more from the books that you love. These are the stories that make us who we are. 2SER broadcasts from the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I'm recording on the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people. I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of those lands, unceded lands. I want to pay my respects to their ongoing connection to the land. This is stolen land. Treaty was never made in Australia. Eileen Chung is an Australian poet of Chinese descent. She's the author of eight collections of poetry. Her work has been listed for numerous prizes, uh, including the likes of the Victorian Premier's Literary Awards and the PM's Literary Awards. Her first collection, Burning Rice, is now taught as part of the New South Wales HSC syllabus. Today, we, uh, she is joining us. We are going to be talking about her new collection. It's called A Thousand Crimson Blooms. Now, Eileen's poetry has been described as luminous. It is incredible. This, this collection explores... Um, life and death. It explores experiences of childbirth and, and losing a child. Um, and uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to actually quote someone here. I'm going to quote the poet Bowie Kim Ching. Uh, it has a controlled intensity and that Eileen's voice unmistakably burns in the poems. I have loved immersing myself in this collection. I'm incredibly happy to be sharing it with you. So join me as we discover Eileen Chong's A Thousand Crimson Blooms. I am about to introduce you to an absolutely fabulous poet, and I've had the pleasure of immersing myself in her collection at the moment. Hello, Eileen, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Fantastic. I've had the immense pleasure of immersing myself in A Thousand Crimson Blooms over the last week or so. Oh, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Well, first of all, my my name is... Even though it's spelt Eileen, mm. it is pronounced Eileen. Okay, um, and that's because that's okay. That's because my 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 mother named me Eileen as a translation of my Chinese name, which is Eileen, oh. um, which I don't advise people to try to say unless they speak Mandarin, because then uh, that gets mangled as well. But um, I actually explained this in my um, fourth book of poetry, Rainforest. You know that. The characters of my name, um, uh, the, my personal name Lin, means um, in its it, in its composite characters mean rain over forest, but it actually refers to a gentle, continuous, um, and nourishing rain. Oh. So you know, it's really nice. I mean, I, I I've spent many years kind of. Um, being very frustrated at correcting people around my name, but now I realise that you know I shouldn't. It shouldn't be um, something I, I'm frustrated or ashamed about because it actually exemplifies and encapsulates the different culture that I straddle. Mm. Um, so, but I can't tell you how many times I, I explain my name is Eileen, and people go, "No, it's Eileen because it's Irish." Oh. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I find if I'm reading, say, prose or novels, I can dive in. Sometimes, you know, I've got three or so books on the go. That's no problem. With poetry, though, I kind of I start, I dip my toe. And then it's not until I'm fully immersed and I'm reading and rereading poems in a collection 
that the thoughts and the images start to coalesce for me. What are you like as a reader? How do you approach your reading? Is it different for different styles? I am an extraordinarily slow reader of prose. And so that is difficult for me in terms of um, my attention span, I suppose. So I feel like my reading style has evolved over the years as I have become a poet. To I'm much more of a sprinter rather than a marathon runner. So I think the reading of poetry requires very short, well, I say short, but time is relative, and very intense focus on a, on, on a very small, you know, and sometimes it's not small, but a very intense focus on the layers of a poem as opposed to the action of reading prose where it's, I feel a little bit more relaxed and, um, but in actual time, it feels like it takes me so long to read something that I would have covered in a one-page poem. And that's not to say that, you know, I prefer poetry over prose, although, of course, I prefer poetry over prose. Um, but um, it's just a different, it's a completely different uh, mode of thinking, it's a completely mm. different mode of reading and writing. And um, what I absolutely love about poetry is the, is the compression of language and the attention to which um, a poet can pay to any element of the world um, and, and, you know, the whole, the whole notion of, of Blake um, uh, seeing the world in, in a flower. I, I mentioned that, re- that I read and I reread when it comes to poetry and I, I think I probably would separate this idea of, of the reading, which is maybe the initial, my initial pastor of a poem, and, and then as I start to experience a poem – and for example, I, I found in A Thousand Crimson Blooms many of the poems to be very physical, very visceral, embodied, giving voice to to sensations that occur to many of us, some some uh, probably uh, maybe not to all of us, but in a space where we don't always have words or we don't always put words to them. And that that requires that rereading. I need to start to try and experience that because poetry is able to delve across senses in that way. Where do you, though, as the poet, find the vocabulary for these experiences to communicate them out into a world? First of all, I'd like to thank you for for talking about poetry as experience. Um, Very often, one of the things, I'm also a teacher of poetry in schools, and one of the things I try to tell my students is that poetry must be read aloud. It has to be experienced as sound in time within your body as well. Because when you read a poem aloud and observe what's going on as it situates itself in your body and in the air, it takes on a different life um, as opposed to words on the page. Now, with regards to where I find the words to communicate this experience, um, you know, the standard joke with poets is that we spend the morning putting in a comma and the afternoon taking it out. Um, So in in, in many ways, I think a poem is like a tiny house. We understand that space is limited, attention is limited, time is limited. And so we try to compress language um, in order to represent as, you know, so I think it was Charles Corsley who said that a poem has got to be the most powerful thing one can say in the shortest space possible. And 
for in my own practice of my, my poetics, what's important to me is also what I choose to leave out. And, and I think that's a process of trust between the writer, the poet, and the reader. So oftentimes you'll find that a poet um, bears reading and rereading because precisely because of these gaps in the poem that leave room for the reader's own experiences to come to mind or the reader's own, um, I suppose, histories to come to mind. So in a way, a poem does, um, a poem is almost a, a very ancient form of a hyperlink, I feel, because there are words in there that we choose that tap into, you know, um, preconceived ideas, I suppose, or they try to upset preconceived ideas, but we don't have to say it. All we have to do is to subliminally put it in there. And you, your own mind, the reader, does that work. And the same, this is why the same poem bears rereading at different points in your life, because the poem is a, a, a sort of a mirror to your own experiences. And the more you bring to the poem, the more the poem gives back to you. I really appreciate what you said there about trust. And the reason I wanted to ask that question is I think we live in a time where we are finding ourselves trying to find ways to talk about um, situations, experiences, um, whole lived histories that have not been spoken about or have not been spoken about in certain uh, contexts. And having faith in the ability to find a way to express that and having trust in the ability that, that speaking about things will be received is is so incredibly important. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I loved what you said there. I was hoping uh, we might be able to talk a little bit about the art of poetry generally because, and I'm very excited about this, you're appearing, you're at Sydney Writers' Festival uh, coming up in a few weeks. You're on a panel titled The Unacknowledged Legislators. Now, this is a veritable supergroup of Australian poetry. Um I didn't write everyone's name down, but I, I, you, uh, alongside you're going to be appearing with Ellen Van Nieven, Omar Saker's going to be there. I think Maxine Beneba Clark is going to be appearing. Like, th- this is I, I don't know how this isn't one of the headline events. Like this is this is an incredible, incredible group. And talking about this idea of un- unacknowledged legislators in your poem from the collection "Making Sense," you begin. I tell my students poetry is a, a way to make sense of what you fear. But also in this poet, I, I felt it seemed like it was infused with a deep sense of insecurity. And you end with, a girl at her desk begins a poem. I dreamed everyone, even my own mother, had forgotten my name. As poets, uh, sorry, are poets guides and exemplars, as the panel's title might have us assume? Or as your, your poem, Making Sense, illustrates, you know, how do we move between the personal engagement and the political in our lives now um there's so many parts to to this question i suppose and i'm just going to try to um answer that as wholly as i can given our limitations i'm sorry and um, it's, it's very cheeky of me just no, asking no. you to give a, a sneak peek of the panel <laughs> no no um so i'm 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 terribly excited to be um on this panel with um, these wonderful, wonderful poets. And um, as, as you said, there's Maxine Benavaklar, there's Omasaka, there's um, 
uh, Ellen Van Neven, there's Felicity Plunkett, there's um, Eric Jensen, and it will be adjudic adjudicated by um, Declan Fry, who's a real up-and-coming First Nations um, poet and critic. And, um, of course, the title of the panel, which is not something any of us have, have chosen, comes from a quote from Percy Shelley. Um, and I suppose what we need to realise is that there is a great um, pressure in, in poetry all the time. Um, look, the only thing consistent about poetry is that every few years someone will cry that poetry is dead and long live poetry. Um, and I think what we have to, to understand is that, you know, power and knowledge are, are things that people gatekeep. Um, and poetry is not different from, from any of that. But when we look at um, poets like Percy Shelley, for example, or T.S. Eliot, or uh, Sylvia Plath, you know, the, what we think of as the great, we forget that they were also contemporaries of their time. We forget that their poetry was political in a way of their time. And so you have people saying, oh, I don't like political poetry. I would argue that your poetry is your politics. It is a real, it is a real privilege to be able to say that you're apolitical because you know, and I read something the other day that said that the people, the very people who would say that change happens slowly are the same people who benefit from change happening slowly. So, yes, um, you know, we have a very political poets um, on this panel. Am I a political poet? I am a political poet because I am a political person, because I exist in politics. Um, and, and there is no escaping that. So, but am I a capital P political poet? Are politics within my poems the same way that they are in, um, many other activist poets? I don't know. You know, I, I fancied myself for many years uh, as a, a lyric poet. And I do tend to write very much about the personal, but the personal is also political. Um, and I have to, I have to hear say, I have to hear position myself, you know, as a, um, Asian Australian woman who was an adult migrant to Australia, um, who came from a, a, a long history of working class families, of poverty, of um, violence, um, but who's now firmly middle class, who's educated, who's, who's safe. You know, what are my politics? Um, and can we define that in any one interview? Can we define that in any one poem? Can we define that in any one book? So what I would like to propose is is that um, poetry for me is serves a purpose, but it's not the purpose that people think it might necessarily serve. Um, which is which is to say that one can write political poetry to achieve something, but like Auden has always said, poetry makes nothing happen. But then he goes on to say in the same poem, which is a poem he wrote for WB8, that poetry is a way of persisting. And in one of my poems, in the last line of one of my poems from A Thousand Crimson Blooms, The Hyman Diaries, in the last stanza, I end with the line, to exist is to resist. Mm 
And, you know, for some people that might seem like a real out. But as we have seen with incarceration of marginalized peoples, that we have seen with death rates of marginalized peoples, the very fact of existing is a resistance, much less to succeed, much less to continue to flourish, much less to have joy. So these are the things that I'm trying to reclaim as my own, as as well as the language. Um, and, you know, when we go back to the poem, Making Sense, I'm, I'm reclaiming the acts of everyday living as a form of resistance to say that I don't exist only when there is a cause. I don't exist only when one of my people are shot. You know, I, in, in America with the Asian American killings, you know, I exist when I'm at the supermarket choosing fruit. That is my right and that is my choice and that is my, that is my joy. And, but that poetry must speak to the, the range of human emotions, not just pain. And, and I'm trying to, to be a little bit more joyful in my poems because I understand my poems can sometimes feel like a real emotional scouring, which is very, um, different to who I am. If, if anyone who knows me and who follows me on social media, they know that, you know, my, my, my entire ethos is about it's about joy and love and support, but then they come to my poems and they're very surprised at how how dark it is, you know. But um, yes, you know, I think we we all have deep fears, like like you know, and and of course, my grandmother, my beloved grandmother, who passed away last year, um, had a long struggle with dementia, and to witness my mother um, having her own mother forget her name for me was just um, a, a, a representative of this, the deepest fear that's been realized. I dreamed everybody, you know, including my own mother, forgot my name. So the notion of not having existed or not having lived and that you pass from this life not having done anything for humanity or, or made a difference to anyone, I think perhaps that might be revealing of my own great fear. Thank you for talking so openly about that. I I noted you you mentioned there that there is a great privilege in stating or, or perhaps um, trying to remain apolitical. And I wondered about what that type of existence might feel like. And I'm not asking you to speak to that specifically, but I, did, I noted as I was reading your biography that um, it, it says that you started writing poetry as an adult. And I, I wondered about that. I wondered how strictly true that might be and, and can you separate your life into a time before you listen to the world with a poet's ear? Like what was what was your your consciousness of the poetry inside you like? And I mean, how do you move into that space? That's a, a terribly perceptive um question, I might I might say. Um so I I was a student of poetry um, in Singapore. I studied poetry at school. I took a um, double English major at a, at a university in Singapore. Um, but I never saw myself ever as becoming a poet, um, simply because it wasn't really an option for me in, in Singapore. I became a teacher, a school teacher, um, and... You know, did I write poetry? I think I have some verses published in a school magazine 
somewhere about a cypress tree, which I've never seen except in a Van Gogh painting. Um, so there was a big disjunct between what I considered to be the world of poetry and my the world around me. Um, and this is one of the pains of colonization and, and inherent even in the language. Um, I'm not a Chinese speaker um, beyond everyday language. So I could probably say something like, I need to clean the curtains, but I couldn't talk about Freud or, 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 or psychoanalytic theory, for example, in Chinese. Um, so much of my, my inner mind um, is shaped by English, which is a borrowed language in a way, even though it is my first language. Um, and when I read poems in school, which I loved, like Wordsworth, I had a big problem. What were daffodils like? You know, so I would imagine when I read, and you know, this was pre pre Google. You know, so I got to the before I went to the library to look up what a daffodil looked like. I just imagined chrysanthemums. So there was this big disjunct for me between what was external and what was internal. And it wasn't until I moved to Australia, um, and so my origin story of how I became a poet, I've talked about several times, but it, it really was a bit of an accident. I came to Australia wanting to become uh, a high school teacher, the same as when I was in Singapore, but I was then um, told that um, because of a quirk of fate that my I was three months short of a continual uh, work experience um, process. So I couldn't go back to Singapore and keep teaching because it was broken up. Also, they didn't recognize my qualifications, even though I graduated top of my university. Um, they wanted me to take an English qualifying test, and which I refused because, you know, for me it was a matter of pride. And so um, I was told that if I acquired uh, a degree from an Australian university, then I could go back to school to teach. And I thought, well, I didn't really intend on furthering my studies right now, but since I have to, I'll just take what I thought was a Mickey Mouse degree. You know, I'll, I'll do a creative writing um, degree at Sydney University as a full fee-paying student, I might, I might, I might add. Um, so I took a master, Master's of Letters, and when I was in, in university, I had the great fortune to take a class with Judith Beveridge, the poet, and that's when I discovered I was a poet. And I started also reading the work of um, the poet boy Kim Cheng, whom I had and whose work I had encountered years ago in Singapore. Um, but upon realizing that he had moved to Australia 10 years before me, I started to read this work in terms of its, its themes around migration, in terms of its themes around marrying two cultures. Then I started to find um, my way to uh, Chinese American poets, Asian American poets like Li Yang Li like Victoria Chang, where obviously they were writing towards a multiculturalism and a division of cultures that I was also experiencing. And then I realized, this is how, this is how I can do it. I don't have to divide myself. I can, I can be my whole self in this, in this writing. And I I kind of never looked back. You know, I started writing in Judith Beveridge's class in around 20, 2010. Um, and uh, A Thousand Crimson Blooms is my ninth book. Um, it's my fifth full-length collection of poetry. I've got uh, different books in between that. But 
is it's an incredible rate of um, writing. And sometimes I, I wish I could slow down a little bit, but it almost feels like I've, I'm catching up for lost time because many writers I know um, start writing, you know, when you talk to them and when they discovered poetry, they'll say, oh, you know, I've always loved poetry. I grew up in a house full of books. My grandmothers were illiterate because they were kept from school. I didn't grow up in a house with books. My And I write about this in an essay called The Common Table, which was then published in a book called The Uncommon Feast. And oftentimes I feel like I have no right to be a writer because up till even two years ago, my mother, um, who's terribly proud of me, but also extremely anxious about the livelihood that a writer makes. You know, I'll put some flowers into a vase and she'll say, oh, you could be a florist. Or I'll cut my fringe in the mirror to say, you could be hairdresser. <laughs> so, um, you know, to, to, to even be able to say I'm a writer or I'm a poet feels transgressive, but also extremely powerful. That's it for this great conversation with Eileen Chong. Eileen's uh, latest collection of poetry is A Thousand Crimson Blooms, and this was part one of that conversation with Eileen. Uh, a Thousand Crimson Blooms is out now from University of Queensland Press. Stay tuned to your podcast catcher. Uh, part two of my conversation with Eileen will be coming up very soon. Great Conversations is recorded on the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. Stay in touch. You will find Final Draft on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Just look for at Final Draft 2SER. You can also get in touch with us through the 2SER website. Just go to 2SER.com and subscribe in your podcast app. There are new Final Draft episodes, sometimes two, every week. I'm Andrew Popel. Thank you so much for joining me today. I will be back next week with more great conversations from Final Draft. And as always, I hope you have a happy week of reading. Bye now.